Welcome everybody to Why Do We Do That? Um, so um, we are so happy that you've all chosen to be here. Uh, and we do want to congratulate Stephen Lewis on the publication of his book, uh, which is all about communication. Um, and so let's say a shechianu for that coming out. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Ruach Olam Shechianu Vikiyamanu Vigiyanu Lazman Hazah. We bless the source of life for giving us life and sustaining us in uh, this life so that we could reach together this joyful moment and time together. Now, I'm going to ask you, and you can unmute at home if you want to answer, why do we do that? Why do we say Shechianu? Why do we do that? Mm. uh, It makes us stop and makes us be in the moment and makes us be grateful, says Lisa Simon. Someone Mm. was speaking on uh, at home. Uh, Me, (laughs) Millie. Similar answer in that it makes us recognize important moments in life and not gloss over them. So it makes us recognize them, right? That makes us really honor and recognize uh, moments that are special. First, but a first time we've gotten a book from Steven. So like there's all, and, and I'm being serious when I say there's lots of ways to interpret firsts. Um, and for me, it's about like, okay, so right. If it's the first the time you're eating a green apple that's over there for all of you um, in this season, when once upon a time, things only grew in their season, then it was a special thing. And so you, your first bite of an apple happened in the fall Right. And not in, in winter or summer or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, it's like, oh my gosh, the first meaning it's happening again and it's ha- not happened in a long time. But I think also part of our job of reconstructing the tradition is to say, and it's the first time, like, like for Pesach, he only says Shechianu on the first night because it's the first night of Pesach. But I said Shechianu on our Zoom second Seder. Because it's the first time we've gathered that Pesach on Zoom, like together as a KI community. And so, yes, it's for first. And I think like we are invited to reconstruct what first means. Um, because once upon a time, I think life was a lot slower and firsts were a lot more, not a lot more, but somewhat more predictable. And I think now like everything's happening so fast that we need to go, wait, stop. Let's, let's recognize this as a first of a kind. Or something new-ish for us, um, as every bracha, as every blessing is supposed to be in our tradition, a, a moment to stop and to appreciate. Um, so why why do we do that? Why you you can see what I have here. Everyone's like, okay, so wonder what the class is tonight. But I warned you last time this was going to be the topic of tonight. If we don't. Um, fill the hour. I'm, I'm happy to either take random questions or parking lot questions, which I wrote down, um, and or um, begin the next topic. Um, I would like to dedicate tonight's class because that's the classic Jewish way of honoring someone um, is to teach in their honor. Um, tonight, it's about teaching in their memory. I want to teach tonight's class in honor and in memory, uh, beloved memory of David Sharif, um, 24-year-old who from our community was found dead in his apartment uh, a few nights ago, um, beloved member of this community. Not that it matters whether someone's liked or not liked, their life is is just as valuable. It pains the community in a way that is... Um, unique when you're talking about a human being who lived so far past what most people would give him um, the, I don't know what the expectation that he would live into. He was a, a, a person with high functioning autism. Um, he's the son of uh, Karen Shapiro, our beloved congregant and her mother, Myra Shapiro and um, her father of blessed memory, Harold Shapiro. Uh, and David achieved so much in his short life. He did so much. He's published. He published a book of poetry last year. We all received it because he made sure he sent it to each one of us who was important to him in his life. Um, and a lot of that poetry was about what it meant to have low expectations set by everyone else around him, but his parents and his community setting the highest of expectations, not in terms of what he would achieve, but 
the highest of expectations of whatever he wanted to do, he could achieve. And I just, all of us are just reeling from this loss. But I know what he would love is that he would love that we are learning tonight um, in his honor and in his memory because he loved learning. He became the valedictorian of his high school class. He traveled, he went to college, which no one expected, and he traveled abroad for a year abroad in college, which no one expected. Like, just everything that no one expected, his parents said, yes, you can. Um, and yes, you will, and we will help you. And and he did. And um, and the Reconstructionist movement was a huge part of his life. He went to Camp JRF, which is now Camp Havaya, the Reconstructionist Jewish camp, um, as a camper. And they had to deal with all of what that meant for him to be there as a camper. He then graduated to um, the place where he would be staff or leave. And Rabbi Ozzik Sapoznik, the director of Camp JRF, decided to take a risk and to hire David as staff at camp, knowing all that that would mean and all that that would mean in terms of management of parents and cabin people's, it just, and he flourished and that's what we do here and that's what we do best. And he was the best, the best, the best of all of us in terms of what we long for and yearn for to have be real in this world. Um, so that's who we dedicate our teaching to because he wouldn't want us to stop. And he would want us to keep asking, what? Why do we do that, Rabbi? Why do we do that? So in his memory and his honor, we're going to talk a little bit about Havdalah. So why, if Shabbat is the big special day, if Shabbat's the whole point of like, oh, the big holiness, there's chol, there's regular time, and then there's time that's kadosh, time that's holy. So why do we have a ceremony when Shabbat's over? It's just regular time. Why do we do that? Why do we do, if Shabbat's the whole big special holy time, why do we do this whole service when Shabbat's over? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. So the good news, do you want to say something there, Linda Scheibel? No, I, uh, I was asking a question, but it, it was kind of rhetorical. But if you want to answer, please, Bivakasha. So if we celebrate Shabbat, ask Linda Scheibel, why shouldn't we celebrate the rest of the week? I think... What the question that would come back would be was, but if Shabbat's a special time, why would you celebrate the regular time, right? Like I think we often think in binaries, holy, not holy, special, not special. And I think in our regular thinking, our everyday lives, we think about this binary as if this is special, why would we celebrate the not special, right? We light candles, we say a blessing over wine for what's special, why would you do that for going back to regular? Um, and I agree with with your question, like, why wouldn't you? But I think that's a Jewish question. I think your question is a Jewish question. Why wouldn't you celebrate the other, I think, is a very Jewish question. Because I think our Western industrialized consumerist world has a very clear distinction between what's special and what's not and like like what's elevated and what's not and and what's what's money making and what's not right thank you uh, so like i think it's a it's a jewish answer to say why wouldn't we celebrate what's not special too <laughs> right um so i think you're too jewish to really answer the question like why do we do this because it really doesn't make a lot of sense unless one understands that according to Torah and according to the rabbinic tradition of interpreting Torah, it says six days shall you labor, like in King James parlance of the right translation of the Bible, for six days shall you labor and on the seventh day you shall rest. Okay. So six days shall you labor, on the seventh day shall you rest. And we have all of these things that make the seventh day special, and we have all these rituals around that. So the rabbinic question is, does that mean the rest of the time is like, meh? And the rabbis, here's what I love about Jewish tradition. Here's what I love, one of the things I love about how the rabbis interpret our tradition. They say, don't understand on the one hand, there's the six days you shall labor, meh. On the seventh day, it's going to be a day of rest, la, 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 la. It's like, it. The rabbis say, no, 
No. Six days we are commanded to work. Six days we are commanded to engage, manipulate, change, work for the better, work for what kills us to work for sometimes because we feel like it's hopeless. Six days a week, you shall. It's a commandment, a positive commandment. You shall labor at all the things you're not supposed to do on Shabbat, right? So rather than just be a celebration on Shabbat of we're not doing all those things, the rabbis say, no, it's it's the opposite. That for six days, you're commanded to do all the stuff you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. That is fulfilling a positive commandment, fulfilling the divine mandate for us, which is to manipulate the world, to make it, of course, in the rabbinic mind, better. In the Jewish mind, thank you. Mean rabbinic meaning capital R, the period of the rabbis. Um, but yes, thank you for that correction. The the Jewish mind says that laboring for six days is a positive commandment because we're supposed to make the world a better place than it is. And then on Shabbat, here's a very healthy attitude. Not just rest. I, that gets too much attention in my in my view. Not just rest. The healthy thing is, and for one day we go, okay, I did what I could. I did what I could. It's not just, it's not rest. It's stop. Stop. You had six days. You did what you could. Now, enough. And so Harvey Freed is pointing out that there is no special if there's not not special. So we need the six days of the week in order to make Shabbat Special, I totally agree. And I just think the not special doesn't get a lot of attention. It's like, it's what makes the special special is that there's not special. It's just schwach. Some people would say vanilla, but vanilla is my favorite. So I won't say that, but I'll say schwach. Like, it's just kind of plain, like, eh, meh. And, and like, what I want to say is, why do we do that? Because the rabbis believe and the Jewish approach is that the six days are really super important and are indicative of holiness in a different way. The way is engaging, manipulating, gathering, cajoling, voting, like whatever it is. And then one day a week, we're supposed to go, okay, I did what I could. And now I have to let it go. I don't control the world. I don't control my community. I don't control other people around me. I can't control the outcome. So I have to sanctify letting it go. Stephen Lewis, I've seen it percolating over there. What is the question? So Stephen Lewis asks, but on Shabbat, doesn't it feel like there are more commandments? Like you can't do this. You can't do that. You can't do this. Like it's filled with commandments. Um, so what I'm going to say, and I know it's so counterintuitive, um, because it feels like those are injunctions. They used to be seen, I think, as liberations. You don't have to. And, and I'm okay. Grant me this diversion. If it doesn't make sense, like bring me back in two seconds as, as a communicator. Um, I recently spoke with someone who has Alzheimer's. It was my second time sitting down with them, a beloved person. Um, and by the time we finished our first session, they, of course, had forgotten everything that they came to me for the, the first time. So we had the second conversation, which was in some ways filled with the same things. So, so what am I saying? We do the same thing every week over and over and over and over. And I said to this person who said, I can't do anything anymore. I can't do, I can't control the finances. I can't control this. I can't control that. I can't control this. And I said, you don't have to anymore. You're exempt. You're excused. I know it's not how we think about it. And I know we want agency and we want so much like to control. And we want, and I don't mean in a bad way, like we want to control our environment. That's how we feel safe in the world. I think our tradition gets the real wisdom of you don't have to because ultimately you really can't. And we practice, ooh, write that down. Wow. Right? Like we practice one day a week what's true. 
which is we can't control most things. We try. And for six days a week, our tradition says we're supposed to try. And one day a week, our tradition says live with what's real, which is you don't. And you don't have to. You don't have to fix what's going on in Ukraine. Six days a week, you should try. And then one day a week, you should sit with, and you can't. And that is holy too. Or, or, you know, whatever. All right, so anyone at home, please feel free to unmute at any time and join our conversation. I just don't want anyone to feel like they're left out of the conversation because you are muted and not in the room. Did, did Stephen Lewis, did that answer? So, so, so all, a lot of the things don't, 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 don't is because it was supposed to free us from you should, you should, you should, you should, you have to, you ought to, you gotta, you have to, you ought to, you gotta, you have to. And so that was the point of Shabbat was, was all of those obligations of not are like mourning. It's like the seven <clears> days <throat> of Shiva, the seven days of mourning. Don't go to work. Don't look in a mirror. Don't like, don't cook, don't prepare, like, don't do all these things. And not that you can't cook, but like, don't do all these things was to free the family from all the have to, have to, should, should, oughta, gotta, coulda, woulda, oughta, so that they could be present to their grief. And Shabbat's the same. It, there's a lot of rules about what you don't do so that we're freed from what we think we ought to do. Um. I wanted to say just my perspective, it's my own perspective on Shabbat is along with what you're saying is the idea that the six days, maybe we are doing um, everything, almost everything for other people and other entities and other, you know, repairing the world. But that seventh day is for us, like in terms of self-care and reflection and having time to take care of us. That's the way I see it, too. I love that. And there are times where I feel like Shabbat's the only time I see people where I can do something for people I don't see the rest of the week when I'm engaged in working for me and working for my family and taking care of my family and going to the grocery store for my family and walking the dog for my family. And although Judy does most of that. Um, and like what, what, you know what I'm saying? It's like, yes. And I feel like Shabbat is a time where we actually can take care of each other in a way that we don't, and I hear what you're saying, Millie, like we should be doing this for this person and ought to do that for that, or this is due to that person, or this person's going to expect that from me. Shabbat's the time. I get to see a lot of you that I don't see any other time. We're going to gather for Shabbat on the rocks. Are you kidding me? How excited I am that we have only over 90 something RSVPs, right, Rebecca? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Rabbi Amy would never lie. So like, right, we have over 90 something RSVP. And I'm like, I'm so excited that because we get to do something for each other on Shabbat. I don't get to see anybody the rest of the week like that. Like, at that, right. so, I guess, anyway. I guess what I, I guess the word I should just use is obligation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So exactly. On Shabbat, yeah. the obligations are put aside. Right. Maybe. Exactly. And or we get to fulfill the obligations that we really want to do the rest of the week that we can't because the obligations of putting food on the table or whatever, our responsibilities to immediate whatever, like, you know, supersede. So absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So so Judaism is a both and tradition, which we know. So this both andness means we both recognize the time of Shabbat of refraining from what we have to do. Um what we get to do in terms of our responsibilities to other people uh, and ourselves. Um, that also going back into the work week is a really important, wonderful opportunity to take the, the traditions as what we've done on Shabbat, the gathering together, the reflecting, the maybe having some time to be in nature, the maybe having time to be with four-legged creatures, or, you know, in Robin's case, kajillion grandchildren, Judy too, kajillion grandchildren. Um, that's why Shelly left us, you know, flipping grandchildren and whatever. So, um, but like to do, you know, uh, yeah, Jackie made up too. I was like, yeah, like everybody like so like you having that time is supposed to inform how we go into the week having the time to do something different than when our time is obligated everywhere else that's supposed to inform who we are when we go back into the week right so we bless that opportunity to come out of shabbat 
a different person, not a different person, but like shifted, right? Like the, hopefully we've done some work that we're a little more healed so that we can come into the week different. So we bless that opportunity. So the rabbis give us the opportunity to do that with three main symbols, which is the Koski douche, which they forgot to bring me. No problem. Um, so that, yeah, Judy's laughing. Yeah, something new and different. So um, why why wine? Like we, we use wine for Kiddush. Why would we use wine at Havdalah? Why do we do that? If that's for Shabbos, why do we do it for Havdalah? Because it's good, says Linda Scheibel. Well, the wine you bring me is good. The wine that sometimes winds up in my cup here is shockingly horrible. Why, if we use wine for Shabbos, why do we use wine at Havdalah? Why do we do that? Anybody else? Joy. Joy, oneg, joy. But that's for Shabbat, isn't it? Ah, but it's both. All right, so we're leaving Shabbat. We have a, a kind of joy on Shabbat. We have a different kind of joy going into the week. What I'm going to say as your anthropologist rabbi um, is that we use wine to indicate every time there's a change of status. Status. So moving from non-married to married. Under the chuppah, we have a kos... Like we, we make a bracha over wine. Wine is what signifies a change from one status to another. And so it's present at the change from the ending of the status of holy time to the status of the regular time of the week where we're supposed to use all the, that we got from Shabbat to make our engagement with the world holy. Yeah? It's just a different way of expressing our relationship to the holy. Refraining. And taking baths and taking a walk in the woods, all of that is uh, how we increase our connection to holiness on Shabbat. The rest of the week, we're supposed to use our manipulation of the world with our talents and interest and whatever um, as a way of engaging with holiness. So we have a kos yayin, a kos kiddush to um, move us from one status to another. All right, so then we have... Um, this bizarre thing we have, the second bracha is, Blessed are you, God, creator of the species, the types of drugs. That's the modern word in Hebrew for drugs, is besamim. Um, so what does that mean? It means, you know, essences that kind of alter one a little, alter the taste of food, alter our consciousness, like alter whatever. So these are besamim. So in here we have uh, cloves and we have uh, cinnamon sticks. Um, so sometimes I've looked in here and like at a bar mitzvah and I'm like, like, and there's nothing in here. So like we work hard to figure out how to make sure there's something in here. So, um, so why is it so often, Rabbi, shaped like this? If you see besamim boxes, don't you often see them as a turret, right? As a tower. Why, Rabbi? Why do we do that? Why do we make besamim boxes that are shaped like towers? Because in the medieval period, in the Middle Ages, Jews were forbidden for being part of any of the guilds. If they by chance got away to get a license to be artisans of silver or other kinds of crafting where they could make a beautiful Havdalah set, nothing could be done like that that was not approved by the church. And so it had to look like, smell like, feel like a duck, walk like a duck, whatever, quack like, it had to quack like a church. So everything had to look, look like a church spire or artisans were not allowed to create it in medieval Europe. I'm talking about Europe not under the Spanish Influence because under the Muslims, we had it way better and a lot more freedom. But most of us come from Eastern European Jews, right, Millie Wexler? We come from Eastern European Jews. Uh, and so the tradition was to make it in the shape of a church spire so that it would be allowed under the feudal system. And it just, everyone's like, oh, well, that's what a, so then you ask, well, why now do we have to have, because that's what a Havdalah Basamim thing looks like. It looks like a, this. Like, otherwise it's not legit, right? Like, so it's like that whole, it's tradition because it was the only kind you could make. And so then, do you, do you remember that joke about, um, 
the the little little girls like five asks why do we cut the ends off the the roast before we put it in the pan no and so the little girl goes to her mother and says why do we cut the ends off the roast before we put it in the pan and the mother says i don't know that's how your that's how it's tradition that's how it's made for shabbos so ask your grandmother. So the little girl goes to the grandmother. Like, why do we cut off the roast? The answer the roast. Well, we put it in the, cause that's Shabbos. It's how we make the holidays. It's how it's made. Right? The great grandmother is still alive. Thank God. So she goes to the great grandmother. Why do we cut off the answer? Well, cause I bought roasts that were this big and we only had a pan that was this big. <laughs> right? So, but once it becomes, right? That's what you thought in your home. No. Okay. Well, it's a different story, says Kara. Uh, but one, once it becomes tradition, then it's like, okay, well, but this is how Havdalah spice boxes look. And therefore, it has to look like this. And look at this one. It's a beautiful ceramic, very modern, very right now creation that looks like a church fire. Bert? All right, Mr. Busy, I wrote down the answer to your questions from last time about this. You're going to have to give me till next time to answer that. Do the spices have any- No. God forbid. And I'll tell you why God forbid. Because what was, what were spices, <laughs> what were spices used for in the actual temple? What's the kind of spice we know? What were they used for? The incense. God forbid you should accidentally stumble across the right recipe that was used in the temple for incense and you use it in this context. Like lightning comes from the sky and blows up chaos. Like done. So, no, it has no connection to that. What is the connection, though? Um, the connection, thank you for leading me there, Bert, um, is, so our text says, Uvayom hashvi'i, we, we work all the way through Genesis account, of, one of the Genesis accounts of creation, Uvayom hashvi'i, and on the seventh day, Shavat, we say it in Kiddu, Shavat, ve'what? Vayinafash. On the seventh day, God rested, Vayinafash. What is nefesh? Soul. So God, I love Bert, who has internalized my not at all legit translation, which is resolified. Right? He listened to me. Um, God resolified. So the rabbis say, well, what? You're going to suggest that on the other six days, God doesn't have a soul? God forbid a million times. So what must it mean? Uvayom hashvi'i, and on the seventh day, God rested. Vayinafash. God got an extra soul on the seventh day. Only on the seventh day. Therefore, only on the seventh day, we, because we are created in God's image and likeness, we too get a second soul. We are re-soulified, meaning and soulified a second time on Shabbat, only on Shabbat. Hang on, Kayla. So when Shabbat ends, what happens? You lose it, Carol Kleinman says. You lose it. A lot of us lose it when we have to go back to work, but just saying. So the end of Shabbat comes, and we lose it. We literally lose the second soul. So what are, we, what are you going to do? If you're going to lose your second soul, what do you need? smelling salts you need smelling salts so you don't faint from losing your second soul so you don't become so weak you need smelling salts or you need pleasure right to replace so you it kind of distracts you like when ellie was getting her vaccinations when she was a little kid it was the only time she was allowed to have straight sugar like a lollipop or direct chocolate was when she was getting stabbed on both sides for a vaccination Immediately you put sugar in their mouths and that hit of sugar chases out the signal to the brain of the pain signal. And so like it's that same idea so much before they understood that medically and scientifically, the rabbis understood if you're going to lose a soul, like give your, give yourself something pleasant as you're losing that soul to keep you yourself. Okay. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation that the sweet smell the incredible aromatic amazingness of Shabbat should continue with us as we enter into the week. The sweet smell of Shabbat should should color the beginning, the first moments of our experience of a new week. Um, another one that I love is that smell is connected to which part of our brain? 
Huh? Memory and, yes, definitely memory. How old is that part of our brain? The oldest. The oldest part of our brain is the one that is connected to olfactory stuff, right? Think about animals that like feel their way through the world by smell. Um, and so as we go back into the work week, which means our animal self has to kind of come forward to compete, to struggle, to whatever, we give our reptile brain a hit of good stuff because we're going to need it. We're going to need that part of our brain to be like online and awake and functioning. And we should give it a reward because it's what's going to get us through um, this this week of, of engaging that's coming. You had a question, Kayla. We think of like every night when we go to bed and we wake up and we get enough, like we get our soul back and we say, well, yeah, I need. So like why, why don't we do all of this every morning? So Kayla's saying, our tradition says, every night we say, please restore my soul to me when I wake up. And every morning we get up and say, Moda'ani lefanecha, blessed, I mean, thankful am I before you because you restored my soul to me and your loving faithfulness. So why don't we do this every day? Because there's an extra soul that only happens on Shabbat, that we only get on Shabbat. So we have a special ritual to deal with the loss of that soul. Okay, so a lot just got asked in one question. <laughs> All right, so you combined Lurianic Kabbalah, Tzimtzum. Yeah. That is a whole different concept from the rabbinic concept of the soul leaves the body at night and is returned to us by God in the morning. So I'm going to answer what I think is that part of the question, which is where's the soul then? If it's not in us, the rabbis don't talk about it. The rabbis don't worry about it. What they know is that God will lovingly return our soul to us in the morning. And every morning we wake up, it's evident that that happened. The day we don't wake up, guess that didn't happen, right? So, it was, um, But I will say that my mother um, was very involved in alternative kinds of spirituality, including very technical astrology. I'm not talking about popular astrology. She did people's charts, which included a kind of math that is like, and she, like beyond what I can possibly imagine. And she, she used to say that our soul went to the astral plane. So, so it's like kind of a common, and the rabbis were very influenced by the folks who created astrology by Zoroastrianism in Babylonia and all of those cultures that created astrology. You, you go to Israel, you see mosaics on the floor of the, as you have seen, Kayla, you've been to Israel, the, the Zodiac on the floor of the synagogue. They were very influenced and ve it was very enmeshed. So I, all I can say is I think it's probably something like, you know, your soul goes to the astral plane. It's just not an accident that it comes back for the rabbis. Right for rabbinic Judaism, it's that there's a loving God who you go to be close to at night on that plane, and then God lovingly in great faithfulness returns that soul to you rather than keeping it, returns it to you. Because I think the word return is is meaningful. Um, returns it to us in the morning. I mean that's my that is completely non-based in rabbinic literature. It just is kind of my gut instinct is. They, they didn't really care. They trusted that God created this loving universe. And if your soul leaves your body, it's obviously fine and safe. And then God lovingly returns it. And that's what they cared about is that it was lovingly returned this morning. And I need to offer gratitude. for them. Although I, I wonder sometimes. Because my mother would say, if you had a really intense dream about somebody, it meant you were working stuff out on the astral plane. And that it's none of your business what it was. Like it's not none of your conscious mind's business what it was. Just know you were working some stuff out. And just trust that, I don't, I don't you have no idea what I grew up with. Okay. <laughs> so, but you're getting a sense. All right. So, so we have wine that's about change of status from, you know, that time to this time and our way of engaging in the world like that and our way engaging, uh, of engaging in the world like this. Okay. So then, um, and, and I've got the answer to your question. 
about when did Shabbat table ritual become normative. So I looked it up. So I've got that answer for you. So don't let me let you leave without giving you that answer. Um, and Millie Wexler, you said something about, or somebody said something about taking challah. Anyway. Um, okay. So, um, so, so I, I don't want to light it yet so that you can see. Um, so obviously we start Shabbat with two wicks. We talked about that last week. What are the two wicks for? Why, why do we do that? Why do we light two candles? We light one candle for Shamor, one candle for Zachor. Exactly. The two places we get commandments in the Torah for keeping Shabbat. One says, guard it, keep Shabbat. And one says, remember Shabbat, right? Two different versions of the Ten Commandments. I know it freaks some people out, but okay. So I wish we had a bigger one, um, but you see, you all know what a Havdalah candle looks like, so I, I don't need to really trust that you need to see mine, which is a remnant um, to get it. So when we look at Shabbat, we start Shabbat with two wicks. They are separate. And when we have two little separate flames, they are little tiny flames, right? Or even if you light a bigger flame, it's still... Two isolated flames. So the rule for Havdalah is that you have to have at least two wicks that are that are intertwined, that come together. Meaning you can take two Shabbat candles and stick them together and light it to do Havdalah. The point is that those wicks come together. I believe, and I, I didn't, I did not find this in the literature because I didn't look, because I just kind of have always been raised with this, so I just have to believe it's true. Because we take the two separate flames, the two separate wicks of Shabbat, and the whole point of Shabbat is so that when you end Shabbat, there is a connection, right? Those two separate things are brought together. The separate parts of ourselves, separate parts of our community, separate parts, like what, what they are hopefully by the end of Shabbat brought together, which is why it's a minimum of two. Those two small wicks of Shabbat now come together. Now, if I take two little, and even if they're bigger Shabbat flames, now I bring those wicks together and light that, what happens? It's a bigger flame, right? It's a much bigger flame, like bigger, like mamash bigger. So for me, when we think about the darkness that's dispelled by light, and that's the only thing that works against darkness is kindling light, right? That's the only thing that makes darkness disappear. And by the way, darkness existed in our universe before light, according to Jewish tradition. In the beginning, before there's anything, there was darkness on the face of the deep. Darkness existed as a thing. People say darkness is the absence of light. was a thing in the uh Israelite cosmology, or God says, light exists and light exists. So what is the only thing in our experience that dispels darkness? Light. Two separate things of light, whether they're small or big, doesn't matter. Bring those wicks together and you create a torch. And those separate things dispel, even though it's the same amount of wick and the same amount of oil and the same amount of whatever, it dispels less darkness when they're separate. When you put them together, that torch dispels, dis, whatever, is dispelled by you? Communication. Like, dispels a whole lot more darkness. The same amount of wick, the same amount of oil, the same amount of fire, when you put them together, into a torch, it dispels more darkness. I believe this is part of the message of the braided Havdalah candle. That at least two wicks, even if you just bring two wicks together, it's a bigger flame. But we go overboard because we're Jews. If two were good, why not do whatever this is? 16, right? Like a million and a half here, right? And so there's there's all different numbers. There's all different ways to do this. A lot of us are familiar with this particular Havdalah candle, which is like one, two, three, four, five, six. Thank you. Six wicks together, um, right? Um, and so they are braided together. You see? So two little Shabbat flames to begin, but this is what we end Shabbat with, hopefully. Um, what I like to talk about with this is that um, because we go more than two, I like to say um, 
to people when they come here for a bar and bat mitzvah. We, for the afternoon one, we end with Havdalah. Um, and I like to say to the people gathered, because when we join all of our differences together, we create a torch. What does Havdalah mean? Separation. Havdalah means separation, distinction, right? To distinguish one thing from another. Havdalah, separation, distinction. We are blessing distinctions. We are blessing differences. We are blessing that we go back into the week where we have different opinions. We have different ways of seeing things. We have different origins. We have different stories. We have different goals. We have different priorities. Okay, that's fine, people. Figure out a way to bring those somehow into the same space. They don't stop being separate. They're still separate strands. They're still separate wicks. They don't become one in some blissful blah, blah, blah. They remain separate, but they come together close enough that the fire catches all of them. They remain distinct, but they contribute to a torch. I believe, I really believe this is the truth. When we can honor distinctions, when we can honor difference, and we can yet have them close enough to each other that the fire catches, that is what will finally and ultimately the only thing that will dispel the darkness. So for me, this is not just a symbol. For me, this is a symbol of a very deep truth. Stephen Lewis. Why is this the one? That is a very good question. Um, that's a very good question. I don't have an answer. So now you're going to challenge me, just like Freed over here, to go do more research. Um, my bet is because that is a dangerous thing to let bur- Like truly, it's like, I mean, that's... Well, you could blow it out. You don't have to. So that's a custom. But remind me, I'm going to talk about that in a second. Oh, my gosh. I did not think this was going to be enough material for the whole hour. Okay. So I want to, I know, right? Uh, I forgot who I was with. So um, so I bring, if I forget, tell me to talk about the wine um, and what I do here. Okay. So so we have this. So then we do, we lift it up. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? You'll see all of us do this in different combinations. Some people do this. Some people do this, that, that. Some people like, so you see all of this. It's like, what? They don't know if they got a manicure this week. Like they don't know what their nails or their paws, their claws look like. Don't even get us started about our chihuahuas claws. So like, they don't know what it looks like. So what, why, why are we examining our nails? Why do we do that? So um, there are a lot of explanations, just like for any Jewish custom, like one quest, one Jew, three opinions or whatever it is. All right. So I made sure I like wrote them down. All right. So one is your, what do we say? We're not supposed to women's Passover event people, uh, but women who were at the Passover event, um, we are not allowed to say a blessing. What? What blessing? We're not allowed to say a blessing. If what? In vain. We can't say God's name and a blessing if it's not a for real, for real, mamash, for real, legit blessing. So some people say, if we light the candle, but it has no purpose, like if it's not, if we're not using it for something that we're really grateful for, then you can't say the bracha, blessed are you God who creates the light of fire. So one thing says, okay, so what would you use in the ancient, think about before electricity. What would you use something like this for? To see, you'd use it to see. So if you need light to see, it's not like I see that my phone is here or I see that Bert's sitting here usually. If you're going to light something, it's to it's to see something at a little finer point of distinction. So the Talmud rules and Talmud Masachet uh, Brachot, the Talmud rules, like if you're using it, it should be to see what country a coin is from. You should be close enough to the, like the flame should be beneficial enough to you to see what country a coin is from. But if you're dealing with Shabbos, we haven't been around coins and you might not have a coin handy, but it takes about the same amount of light to detect the difference between fingernail and skin. So if I'm going to benefit from the light so that I can say an actual bracha over the benefit of the light, 
so I don't take God's name in vain, God forbid, then if I hold my fingernails up to the light, I can discern the difference between my fingernails and my skin. So I'm making use of the light. The other is that if I do this, I can see the difference between my fingers and the shadow my fingers cause on my palm. And for the Kabbalists, for the mystics among us, that's the difference between the visible world and the hidden world. The way God is made manifest and obvious in the world and the ways that God is hidden. The shadow side of God. Um, love that too. Um, the other is that there's a Midrash that says in Eden, how did Adam and Eve walk around the garden all day long, stepping on thorns, bumping into this, getting stung by that? How did they survive in Eden? They had no shelter. They had no whatever. So the Midrash says in Eden, Adam and Eve were covered with fingernail and toenail. Their whole bodies were covered with this stuff that could bend and move, but protected them from everything in the jungle, right? The garden was a jungle. You, Lisa Simon just today went on a hike and almost stepped on what? Oh my God. A big butt yes. rattlesnake. It was huge. Okay. Now, if that actually got you, we would not be here doing this right now. We'd all be at the hospital, like with Lisa, right? So the folks who wrote, who, who were interpreting that story go, well, how did they survive Adam and Eve in the garden? They had fingernail and toenail all over their bodies. When they got kicked out of the garden, it all receded to this point at the end of our fingers and the end of our toes to let us remember Eden, that we should remember that we need to protect each other, protect ourselves because we no longer have the protection of Eden. We're out in the real world, but we have a remnant. We have a reminder that we are loved and that we are cared for, right? The other is that if you're going to say a blessing, say a blessing over something that is continually abundant. Even after we die, fingernails and toenails continue to grow. So if you like that one, by all means, everyone on the screen is like, no, thank you very much. Okay. But it's a legit one. Like, you know, they keep growing. So something that's abundant. Yeah. Like for a while, like for a while. Yeah. I, you know what? I, 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 I haven't asked a lot. Um, I, yeah, I, uh, no. Um, all right. What else? Um, so the, uh, the other one I love is that, remember we talked about Shabbat, we start with the open palm. We put the cup, the kos, in this vulnerable, tender part of us where we like give and receive blessing and um, and sensitivity and energy and all that. So we go back into the work week. We, we start Shabbat like this because we're coming to that time of safety and opening and community and all of that. We're going back into the work week. So what do we do? We cover that over. We protect it. With, with what? With the sign, the symbol that we are loved and protected, we cover that tender part of us. Not because it's bad, but just because it's necessary. We have to go back into the world. We have to go back into the work week. We have to go back where life is not always pleasant. I know it's hard to believe that work is not always pleasant. Um, or not just work, but like, and I mean our work in the world. I mean that by the rabbinic interpretation, not paid work. I mean our our engaging with the world is not always pleasant and we have to kind of uh, steal ourselves for it, if you will. So we cover over that tender part of ourselves so that we can go out into the world and, uh, and function as we need. To. Um, so, so coming to the, putting it out in the, in the cup, a lot of people put it out in the cup. <coughs> um, I don't do that because a, I like to take a sip of wine because you can't make a bracha over wine and then not, drink it or it's a blessing in vain. You have to do an action with what you've said a bracha for. So A, I want to drink the wine and I'm just going to take one sip and put this out in it. But the other thing um, is that it's really nice. We take here for the bar and bat mitzvah uh, and you'll see a lot of Havdalah sets that come with a tray. You pour the wine into the tray. Um, so you, cause you pass the wine to either be drunk or, you know, whatever. And then you pour the remnant into the tray um, and then you put this out in the tray, but either way, it doesn't matter in the cup or in the tray, you hear the sound 
of Shabbat ending and the new week beginning at a bar and bat mitzvah. When we do it here, I say the sound of a childhood ending and the path to adulthood beginning. And then people cry, which is like chiching. Love that. Got him. Which Judy thinks is a little sick to this day, but um, she's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. She, yeah. She's like, yeah. Amy's like chiching. They're crying. Um, and like, look at her. See, see, um, but here's the thing. One custom I learned that I love is that that wine that you spill into the tray that I spill into the tray and then I put the microphone by it and I, and I put the, and also you can't see it when it goes into the cup. So if you pour it into the challah tray or the havdalah tray, people can see it like sputter out and hear it, which I think is just very dramatic, which I love. Um, but the other thing is that I, then once it's out, and it, and the, now you have the tray with the wine in it and the wax remnants in it. Um, I like to go to the tray if it's a simcha. So either at a wedding or a bar mitzvah where you're making havdalah or even at just at Shabbos, but especially at a simcha. So I take, I dab my finger in the wine from the tray, put it here, um, which I watch someone do. And then on my wrists. Um, and then I go to the mother and father siblings, grandparents of the bar bat mitzvah. And I do the same thing. I take the wine and put it on their pulse points like perfume to say, may the smell of the joy, may the aroma of the joy of this simcha um, stay with you for a really long time. And it's a way to just kind of a treat that as holy. Um, and also to like um, give a physical taking it with you sense. Um, so I invite all of you when you make Havdalah or someone else makes Havdalah, feel free to dip your finger in the, the wine of the coast or on the tray and take it, take the spell of Shabbat and of community and of whatever that gathering. Cause we don't usually make Havdalah without a community. Let's be honest. We're liberal Jews. Um, w- what that has meant and to take that forward into the first moments, first hours of the week. It's one of my favorite traditions and everyone looks at me like I have three heads when I start to do it um, until I say to them, may the smell of the simcha stay with you and your family, you know, for a really long time. And then it, and you can just tell they're deeply moved because we don't, I believe, have enough smells and bells um, in the Jewish tradition because once the temple was destroyed, as we've talked about, we lost a lot of that. We lost a lot of the really yummy Incense, we just talked about incense, right? All that kind of stuff. We lost a lot of that um, once the temple was destroyed. And Catholicism, I'm so envious of, as many of you know, that it's maintained in the Catholic Church. Our beautiful rituals are maintained in the Catholic Church where smells and bells are, you know, just everywhere. And, um, and they get it. They get the importance of that. And, um, and, and I miss it deeply that we don't have more. So every opportunity I can get to have it be visceral, um, and really, mamash, immediate um, to the senses. I love that. 